Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Today, we're going to dive deep into intercultural competence. I've known my guest for a number of years. We often bump into each other on the speaker circuit and during lockdown, we were even asked by one client to work together to create a mashup session combining leadership behaviours and intercultural communication, which was a lot of fun and also quite challenging. As an intercultural trainer with over 20 years experience, my guest is founder of the company Kim Colk. She works extensively in the UK higher education sector, but she has a range of other clients as well, including Warner Brothers and the Premier League. It is my great pleasure to introduce Joe Bloxham. Oh, thank you very much. What a lovely, warm, positive, very Mel-like greeting that is. Thank you very much for inviting me in. You're very welcome. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Been very busy February, but I'm still good, still alive, still here. Brilliant. That's what we like to hear. So I know that your speciality is intercultural communication. So I guess for the listeners out there that don't know you, perhaps you could give them a potted history of how you come to do what you do. Okay, so I guess it's a bit odd in that I started off life in a pretty culturally homogenous home county town. Maybe that was why I needed to escape. As a very young child, I was very sort of inquisitive, was always kind of destined probably to go somewhere different. And yes, so there was a kind of hunger there. But so I did a bit of traveling, quite young, Palestine, Egypt, places like that. But I guess really for me, the sort of point where I started to think that this was the sort of job that I might want to work in was when I first went to live in China in the mid 90s. And it was a an amazing experience, of course, being somewhere very different to where I'd grown up. But I think also I had the most amazing students, amazing colleagues, particularly my dean of English was like a cultural mentor who would sit with me for hours and try and explain things. And when I didn't understand things, I could just phone him up and say, I don't know what's going on. Can you tell me I'm not getting it? And he would, you know, take the time and have the patience to explain it to me which I always think was incredible because he hadn't really traveled himself outside of China and he'd looked after a, a couple of foreign teachers before me but he had these just incredible ways of helping me understand what was going on so I think that was a very fertile place to kind of start learning about intercultural relationships and then I came back from China really motivated to work somewhere in a field that would help people understand each other I'd gone out with lots of preconceptions to China. Clearly, people had preconceptions of Westerners. And it just seemed crazy that we were so ignorant of each other. So I thought, actually, this is really what I want to do. 
don't know what this job's called. I didn't really quite know what that would be. It turns out that's what it is. It's sort of being an intercultural learner or consultant, whatever you want to call me. So yeah, that was the sort of starting point for it. And when I came back to the UK after being in China, there was this weird thing where I opened up the newspaper and this sort of dream job just kind of shone out with gold rays from the newspaper. And it was to work on a brand new international youth exchange program that VSO were running with the Prince's Trust and uh, British Council, which was basically getting lots of different types of UK young people together with lots of different types of people from, say, Nigeria, Ghana, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and squashing them together for six months on an intense volunteering and learning program. And I sort of gradually moved through being with young people and facilitating on the ground to being in charge of the sort of training and development. So that was five years of watching very intense intercultural dynamics. So everybody on the program had a partner, including us as staff. We all had a partner in Ghana, a partner in Sri Lanka. So everything we had to do, we couldn't avoid any of those difficult issues. And it meant we would watch team dynamics for months and months progress, deteriorate, be amazing. So that was an amazing stepping board to the job I do now. So I guess that's how I landed here as an intercultural trainer, sometimes mistaken as an agricultural trainer. When I'm at conferences, people don't know quite what that job is. It's a bit niche. So I have to enunciate quite clearly. So, yeah, that's how I got to be an intercultural trainer. Fantastic. And so... I know that much of your work now is in the university sector, and we've had conversations about this, haven't we? How often we see that these skills are skills that are needed by by frontline staff, the people that are interacting with students. And yet there's a real need for leaders, managers to look at the work that you do and see how they can bring that into their teams and the benefits that there would be from that. So what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think there are some really interesting misconceptions about who needs to have intercultural competence. I think, you know, if you're talking about, you know, people that sit on the front line, like a reception desk at the university at an information point. People get that quite quickly. But I think sometimes if I, people say to me, oh, where, where are you working today? And usually now it's on Zoom, but sometimes it's face-to-face and it used to be face-to-face. And I'll say, oh, I'm working with a bunch of university domestic assistants or cleaners. People are like, well, we know, well, what are the intercultural issues there? And of course, anyone who's worked in this space knows that everything's cultural. <laughs> you know, if you're cleaning up after people's messages, you're daily interacting with students, you're trying to get into their rooms and out in a respectful way. All of that has intercultural issues involved. And I think also probably a lot of our workshops are done with what people would call frontline staff, either academics who are in class trying to manage very different expectations of what a classroom's like, or it might be mental health advisors or you know so we're often working with frontline staff but I think it is a massive issue for our managers and our leaders as well I mean it's it's our higher education leaders that are setting the visions out for our university and you know if we want to be inclusive places if we want our students to be global graduates in the truest sense who are ready for that world you know that we're so intermingled now as human beings the leaders are the ones that are setting out that vision and enabling that to happen. So I think it's absolutely something leaders have to understand. 
And it's absolutely something managers have to understand. We know that staff at universities are incredibly diverse, you know, much like our health sector staff. So, you know, usually the figures for academic staff, 25% of those will not be British. So if we don't have managers who can work well with that diversity, we're losing something quite big. Uh, of course, I would say that because that's <laughs> what I do. I'm probably a bit biased, but I do think it's a core set of competencies that everybody needs to have. Leader, manager, frontline worker, whoever you are. You need it to be a good neighbour. You need it to be a good friend. You need it. You need it. That's the summary. You absolutely do. And you've recently been involved with the University of Birmingham around cultural competencies and bringing that more into the workplace. What sort of things did you uncover whilst you were doing that work? Yeah, those were really interesting. So I was invited in just to help support with one particular part of that, which was to run some focus groups. So the Research is really looking at how employers value intercultural competence in the workplace, but particularly what do second generation migrants contribute to the workplace? So people whose parents were kind of born somewhere else. So it was really, really interesting. We had quite a diverse group of people coming to those focus groups. And I think one of the standout things for me was really about how much if you are second generation or your minoritized group more broadly that sometimes you can't always bring your whole self into the workplace I think that's a really interesting thing for us all to reflect on and I guess that echoes other research that has come out I think way back in about 2009 the NUS uh, were talking to black students in UK universities and asking them about their experiences and I think it was something really shocking like a third of those students didn't feel they could bring black perspectives into the classroom and it starts really making you think you know we can have the visions we can have the kind of rhetoric for our organizations but when we're actually talking to people on the ground do they feel they can bring their whole selves to work? Can they challenge things? Can they contribute their ideas? Now, you know, you and I, we've all read the research that shows us that diverse teams are kind of super powerful because they can help you avoid risks. They can help you be much more creative. But of course, if we're not allowing that to come to the surface, if people can't contribute their ideas freely, bring their whole selves and their lived experience to work, we're going to be massively missing out on that. So A, you'd have to recruit a diverse team. We know there's a lot of challenges in doing that because of everybody's biases. And then when you have that team together, you've got to make sure that, that people feel that they belong that their voices count and about how we listen and all of that stuff. So I think there was lots of stuff that came out of those focus groups and I'm not clever enough to be analysing all that. I'm letting the academics do all of that. So I'm really interested to see how they pull out some of the stuff that came out of those focus groups. It'll be really, really interesting. Well, maybe when you have that and you've had time to cogitate it, you could come back a second time and share those findings with us. You make a really interesting point And it's something that I've muted about, which is we're talking about intercultural communications. But where does that sit alongside the EDI, the the Equality, Diversity, Inclusion agenda? Are they different? Are they connected? What's your thoughts? 
Well, I like that you're not sparing me any difficult questions, Mel, on the podcast. You know, I thought this was going to be a cozy chat. I mean, that's a massive, massive question. I guess lots of people have very different kind of perspectives on that. But I'll share with you my kind of personal feeling. I mean, when I first started out working professionally some time ago, it wasn't called EDI. So I think that's always the interesting thing, isn't it? That every field shifts. So we now talk a lot about EDI, so equality, diversity and inclusion, whereas it used to be much more focused around equalities and diversity. So I think things shift and I'm seeing a lot more overlap now between those two fields even though they have different histories so of course any intercultural trainer who's not interested in diversity equality and inclusion you would kind of question whether they're in the right job so of course there's a massive overlap but I guess for me when I go back in time you know the Equalities Act was quite massive and that pulled together a lot of equalities legislation that we had and when I first started out sort of 30 years ago as a professional and for about the first decade of my time working a lot of it was focused around those protected characteristics that are people who are protected by law so I think people focused a lot on that group and I think as we've added the inclusion we're kind of broadening out how we look at diversity and who we focus on which of course allows for a much easier overlap with culture because culture isn't specifically a protected characteristic in our law I'll leave the lawyers to get really detailed on it is a blurry area because of course it does really overlap with race and it does really overlap with religious belief but if you look at any sort of guidance on the equalities legislation you never see a case study about culture it's always about race it's always about kind of religious belief in in my experience so I guess you know the two fields have come from different histories but I think we're seeing a lot more synergy now I'd like to think intercultural trainers and you know most of the ones that I meet have done this have really taken note of Black Lives Matter and anti-racist practice and maybe have always done that. I'd like to think that I've always tried to be learning about racism and incorporating that into my workshops. But definitely I've been provoked to think about that more. And I think most intercultural trainers have been as well. Of course, there are still (laughs) intercultural trainers who perhaps sit outside of that Venn diagram. You know, I did go to one slightly toe curling session once. I have learned a lot about my own culture. I've learned a lot about different African and Asian communities. I'm not very hot on European cultures. So I went along to a local session being run uh, for local business people on working with people from Italy. I don't think it was actually phrased as politely as that. And it was like a all Italians are like this all the time and this is how you work with them and this is what you do and obviously that's really counterproductive it doesn't take into account any sort of intersectionality you know what about north-south divide in Italy what about regional stuff what about all the other rich things that make us human beings you know so there's really exciting things around how we can be working to support each other so I went to a lecture a couple of years ago by Dr Perry Hinton who talked about unconscious bias and how we might know that we're racist but then where do we go with that you know how far will that take us and he was saying you know intercultural trainers are always talking about how our environments kind of influence us you know we grow up in soups so if we can understand how we've all grown up in racist soup we will have a better chance of getting rid of those racist practices because we know where they're coming from we know what's affecting our mindset so yeah I think it is a really interesting space I'll stop there but obviously there's a lot more to talk about I I don't want to take up the whole podcast ranting but um there is and I just had to throw that question in there because (laughs) I think it is 
I think it's very real as the EDI agenda is becoming more and more prominent, then how does that fit? But I, I think I've had conversations around both of these topics. And I think the thing that I take from it is that at the heart of both of these, it's about being inclusive, being respectful of people as individuals and recognizing that they are not just what they do on their job description. They are far more than that. And that whole idea of sweeping generalizations is really unhelpful. And as you were talking about the Italians, it did make me chuckle because my dad is Greek Cypriot. So I can't tell you the number of times as I was growing up, it was like, oh, does he run a fish and chip shop? It's like, oh, no, man. he's a professor of computer science. I think that's slightly different. <laughs> mm, yes. <laughs> yes, I've heard conversations like that when I worked on the youth exchange programme. I'm not going to name any names, but somebody in a working in was like, yeah, I really need some African drummers. I was kind of like, uh, mm, we've got a biomedicine student. We've got, a, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, let's not go there. No, let's not. So... <laughs> The work that you've been doing with frontline teams, if there was something that somebody is listening to this and saying, do you know what? I really want to embrace the intercultural competencies of my team. How would you suggest they start that journey? Where would you suggest they go? So I think if we want to be building intercultural teams, then we need to think about that right from the beginning. So I think a lot of the time people think the only thing you can do is to bring somebody in to do some training. But of course, if you can think about it really early on in terms of your recruitment, you've already got a really diverse set of people that you're working with that can kind of create some of that magic right from the beginning and obviously a lot of people have gained a lot of intercultural competence by having by or multicultural families etc etc so I think all of that's really important at the beginning and I just sort of say that because I think sometimes that gets neglected and then I think it is around what kind of environment do you have are there opportunities for people to be learning from each other and I think obviously that has to be a very optional thing we don't want to be extractive in it's my job to be an intercultural trainer but it's not normally anyone else's job so if people want to share about that culture then that's obviously a fantastic first-hand way for people to learn about their culture so I think we see lots of organizations trying to enable that to happen it might be if we're looking at higher education you know students being enabled to come forward with a small pot of money to share something about their culture and we can do that within our work teams as well and then I guess none of us are ever going to be perfectly intercultural competent I know you always laugh when I say you know I'll be dead before I'm perfectly intercultural competent there's too much to learn you know we've always got to learn a lot about ourselves and everybody else and so I think there's always an opportunity to give people space to improve their skills so you know, most workshops that I'm running, I'm not teaching people things from ground zero because, of course, people have been knocking around with human beings the whole time they've been on planet Earth and therefore they'll have been learning about diversity. And I love the fact that teams, when I'm working with them, will often say, well, you know, my son has autism, so I, I'm already quite mindful in my communications about what can go wrong if I'm being very literal with my son about my communications, because this, what I say, will mean exactly what I've said. And of course, I didn't mean it exactly. So I think people bring a lot into that. So it's allowing a space for people to kind of learn from each other. And then 
giving them an opportunity just to hone those skills a little bit more by as you know I've got some fantastic associates that I work with who I've worked with for about nearly 15 years now and they're constantly teaching me new things so by them just being in a room with other people I think they're they're going to help people learn as well so yeah there's lots of things we can do and I would really advise people don't just think right we've done one bit of training five years ago that's done think about all the things you can be doing to help everyone keep incrementally improving what they're aware of what they understand what they know about absolutely I have one client at the moment a university client and during lockdown they launched a newsletter and I'm very fortunate because they include me on the circulation list and they have a culturally diverse team. And it is so interesting because the newsletter was coming out weekly, it now comes out monthly. But I, every time I read it, I learn something new about a different culture, a different group of people, a different celebration all of those things. And I think it's a marvellous way that is very inclusive and you're learning without even knowing it. And I think something as simple as a newsletter, we can focus again on the job that people do, but actually let's get behind that and let's see what makes us all fascinatingly different and beautiful. I think there's so many ways that people bring that stuff. So I've worked with someone who worked in student accommodation who does the night shift. They basically love gaming. So they've been able to connect with their students who also like gaming. It doesn't matter what country you're from, you've got that thing in common. So they've been able to kind of create intercultural conversations from an interest in gaming. Now that's, I'm never going to do that. (laughs) I don't have that interest. So it's not going to be, it's not going to be for me, but there's just, you know, people have these hidden little gems of knowledge. You know, they might have a sister-in-law who's from Hong Kong or they've actually been secretly studying Japanese, but not telling anyone. And yet they work in a, a massive visitor attraction where actually sometimes you just need a few words in Japanese they could be a really great resource but there's not been that space for people to kind of find out about that so uh, yeah can I get on that circulation list for that newsletter it sounds really nice I think I, I can probably get you in there I'll have a word, word for me you work with them as well so I'm sure okay. you can <laughs> if they not put me on that list I take that very personally <laughs> so diving deep for a moment You've had an amazing career. You've lived in in many, many different places. When for you have you had to dive deep and what did you learn about yourself during that process? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I was sort of looking at the title of the podcast. I thought you might ask me that. And it's a really difficult one, actually. I feel like she's going to ask me that. And it's difficult because I look back and maybe it's just because my memory is really bad that nothing seems that difficult anymore. I'm sure it did at the time. You know, as you can imagine, working with 17 to 25 year olds for five years internationally, things were going to happen, weren't they? So I have set up in the middle of the night with my little desk already, my emergency desk set up, dealing with someone who's having their appendix out in a fairly rural hospital in Thailand. And I'm just that point in the middle between very worried parents Uh, my medical advisors from VSO and staff on the ground who were trying to put coins into a phone in a Thai hospital. So there were lots of moments like that, you know, an outbreak of dengue fever. My boss was aware and we had to move the whole project. There were lots of moments, but I think because it was a very professional setup and I was 100% motivated. I love that. I love everything about that job. It didn't feel like I had to dive deep. So I think for me, maybe the diving deep might be more unexpected things like transitions in my career 
So I absolutely loved working on that international volunteer program. Probably gave a little bit too much of myself. So that might have been a learning moment. I loved it so much that I would be there till late at night. I would you know, be being tucked out by the security guards. And that's not necessarily very healthy, is it, long term? But deciding to change from that was really hard because I loved it. Yet I knew it wasn't a job I could do forever. I didn't want to stay in London. And so therefore had to do something different. And I think that was really difficult for me. I can remember actually handing in my resignation letter to my boss and was hardly coherent. I was sobbing so much, which I'm sure is not a normal scenario for someone handing in their resignation. People probably normally flouncing out or demanding a pay increase, not getting it and being really cross. But actually I was deeply upset to be leaving that job behind. You know, it'd given me a lot. I'd learned masses from that job. But I knew I wanted to do something different. And that was when I first started being a freelance intercultural trainer. So some of those transitions, I guess, have been difficult where it's not like I'm doing a job I hate because that would be quite easy to say, right, I'm going. But it wasn't 100 percent right. So I think when things are pretty good, you're not exactly where you want to be. That that for me is a time when I have to dig deep because there's a lot of effort required for that transition even though the starting point wasn't that bad. But I'm really glad I did it because, you know, I love the job. I've been doing this job for about 20 years and still absolutely love it. So it was worth the dig. So I guess that's what I take from it is that when you know in your heart of hearts what you need to be doing, you'll get there. Do you know what I mean? You, you will get there. It's not easy. There will be periods of, you know, from me starting up a new business, poverty, uh, you know, where you're like, oh, the savings are dwindling when are the clients coming in and then they do don't they and you do one and it snowballs but I, I think I've been quite lucky that's not too deep is it really I haven't had to dig too deep maybe I'm not challenging myself enough but yeah I love that as an example though because it actually is incredibly brave isn't it because you're doing something that you love you enjoy it but you have that little niggle. So actually, I think in some ways, as you said, that is much harder to walk away from than when you're in something that you know 100% isn't right for you. Yeah. So it's that little X, which is how I know you approach your life, because I know how you approach the training and everything that you do. I have never met anyone who is so wanting to, to improve, even if it's just a millimetre or and that's a great approach to have in life and I hope that will inspire our listeners that are out there and maybe thinking well it's all right but I'd love to do this as well it's easy to coast isn't it in a in a good zone but actually sometimes especially when you get to our age Mel you know life goes past in a flash you've got to be doing you know, especially work where you you know you're there a long time it's got to be good hasn't it where possible and it isn't difficult times at the moment but where possible let's be where we really want to be because it makes everything else whatever challenges are thrown at you a bit more digestible because you wanted those challenges rather than someone else giving them and you were like didn't really want these ones thanks makes life a lot easier it certainly does so you know what question is coming next and you're probably going "Ah." (laughs) when have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree Well, Mel, you know, sometimes I struggle with metaphors. I get them all mixed and muddled and kerfuddled. So I don't know. Am I allowed to say that? I'm not sure if I've ever felt like a fish climbing a tree. Maybe I should feel like that. I don't know. What would I be? I think I would not be climbing upwards for sure. I'd be going along a branch. 
because, you know, I've had a taste of managing at a high level and it didn't make me really happy, actually. So I came back down and went sideways. I stayed with the training and learning. That's always been what I love doing. So I'll be on the tree on the training and learning branch. I'm not quite sure what creature I would be. Because like you say, I'm quite incremental. Things don't happen in flashes, but I'm constantly hopefully reflecting and trying to get better. So a bit more energy than a sloth, a bit less energy than orangutans. <laughs> but I've been going along the branch sideways, always looking for new learning, new people to give me new perspectives, reflecting and sort of climbing well and happily rather than going vertically. Does that make any sense to anyone else? I don't know. It certainly does. And it is a metaphor that is not meant to be prescriptive. So I love the way that people interpret it differently. And I love that analogy and that self-awareness that you have, that that you you were doing things that some people may perceive were higher up the tree. But actually, for you, that wasn't right. And you are happy in your way, going along moving along your tree in the way that you want. And that is absolutely wonderful. And that is what we want for ourselves and what we must want for our teams and our customers and our students. So yes, absolutely loved it. Thank you. And it made some sort of sense. Well, it did to you and I. We'll yes, see yeah, what let's, the listeners say. See what else <laughs> that might be more of a test. Absolutely. So how can people get in touch with you, find out more, start a conversation. What are the best ways to get hold of you? Okay, so probably I hang out quite a bit on Twitter. So on my social media front, Twitter is probably where I am most often. So I'm at Kinfolk Joe, and it's a kind of Norse spelling of kin. So it's K-Y-N folk, Kinfolk. So at Kinfolk Joe for Twitter and Instagram. Instagram tends to just be a place I put things that are pretty. I want to just share them with the world. So that's on Instagram. And then, of course, I'm on LinkedIn guess that's usually the territory that we're kind of supposed to live in but I think sometimes I'm probably a bit more of a Twitter person and then of course email website we do have a very occasional mailing list if people jump on the website which is kinfolk.com it might be one a year two a year comes out at random times when I've got some time to put some thoughts to paper see it's always a surprise when you'll get the kinfolk newsletter but you'll never get hopefully too many yeah so that's probably the best way to contact me pigeon letter anything else fine too (laughs) fantastic i will make sure that all of those links go in the show notes and as always it's such a blast talking to you i hope our listeners have enjoyed our conversation as much as i have and i always do so to close out the show joe what final words of wisdom would you like to share today okay well one i always say to my kids which is about try and set your own agenda don't just react to other people's is you know if somebody throws you a ball you don't have to catch it and I've always loved that one because I think it's so easy to think people sometimes present you don't know do you want choice A or choice B and you're like actually there's a lot of other letters of the alphabet I don't want A or B I want something else so that's a general kind of one for life that I quite like and then I guess I should finish with something intercultural so I just pick out two which is people are not like you so I think often people have a very good intention and say to me on courses I just try to treat everyone else like I want to be treated and we've all grown up with those in lots of different cultures there's that kind of idea but of course everyone isn't like you you know I've grown up in a white skin so actually 
I have to appreciate that if I'd grown up in a different color skin, people's experiences have been very different. And I won't know about that entirely. I can try to learn about it, but I won't know about it entirely. So I think remembering that people truly are different to you. So you can't just do to people what you want done to you. That's not enough, actually. You have to do what works for them as well. So that would be one. And I guess the other one that I often say is just mix up your inputs, your connections, diversify what you read, what you watch, who you follow on social media. Don't go into a networking session and sit with a person that looks most like you. Challenge yourself to sit with someone who might be very different to you. Actually, you'll find you've probably got loads in common because we're often just judging on visible difference. But just try and diversify your connections in life. And it is a really enriching I eat better because I've done that, because I've allowed more food inputs into my life, you know, for lunch options. I am not restricted to a meal deal now. I am liberated from that. So I think, you know, whatever it is that you do, if you read, if you watch films, just diversify that. And it really does pay dividends for enhancing your intercultural competence. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple Podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't.